each and every one of us is shaped by anti-blackness, what blackness is, what blackness does, and then um, what we as people have to deny. Anti-blackness shows up as actually a deep denial of all of our humanity. I think anti-blackness operates because shame is a function that exists in our bodies. And um, shame is useful for controlling people. This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Warning. And this week, I had the huge privilege of talking with Prentice Hemphill. Prentice is a healer, a somatics practitioner, teacher, writer, and organizer who works at the intersections of healing and justice. When I learned of Prentice's role at Black Lives Matter as the Healing Justice Director, I was so excited that that kind of role was being institutionalized and recognized um, in, at an organizational level within the Black Lives Matter network. And through that role, Prentice committed to supporting and nurturing the brilliant strategies of organizers and healers to address trauma, move through conflict, and center wholeness in the Black Lives Matter network and in the broader movement for Black freedom and liberation. At the moment that we talked, Prentice was in the last few weeks of transitioning out of that formal role. So you will hear a tone of great care and tenderness for that community and the delicateness of transition as we talk especially in holding any leadership role that tends to the healing of Black leadership within Black Lives Matter, which is a movement that is under constant attack and is so centrally critical to all of our survival. There is a special care and intentionality that is necessary in choosing what to share with a wider audience, a multiracial audience, if anything at all. And so for that reason, I am extra grateful for the wisdom that Prentice generously chose to share with us here. We talk about the ways that anti-blackness shapes all of us to deny our own humanity, the role of shame in racism, how we heal so that we can give our own unique contribution. We talk about avoidance, the Black Lives Matter Healing in Action Toolkit, and how healers are real people with limitations who aren't better than anybody else. In Prentice's practice, they also walk us through belonging as a decision that we can make for ourselves, not an external condition that the world needs to provide us. You can read more about Prentice's history and the other work they do in the show notes. And make sure that you never miss a juicy episode of the podcast by going into your podcast app and subscribing to the show right now. If this conversation moves you, you can also take a moment to give us a positive rating and review. Each one of those really means a lot. So thank you so much to all of you who have done that already. So thanks for being here. And here we go. Hey, Prentice, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm so happy that you agreed to come on and and talk and share some of your experience and wisdom with our community because I've been admiring your work and your public leadership 
around healing justice for some time. Um, and I'm grateful for all the work that you've done with Black Lives Matter Network and, and also beyond before that and, and, and alongside that and after that. Um, and want to just start by asking you how you came into this work of sort of integrating uh, justice and healing work. I think for me, I was doing healing justice work before I was clear that that was the path. So I um, been drawn to organizing work since um, college. And I think before that I had been politicized through my own community, through my own family, but started to understand um, what the role of organizing could be and has to be um, in college and in later years. And, and most of my work and thinking was about prisons and feeling the own the impact in my family and my community of the mass incarceration of black people and instead of seeing that as just a, a shame that individual families had to bear to see um, what was actually happening to our communities um, was like the lights being turned on and so that it's kind of where I moved in my own work, um, working with organizations that were uh, organizing folks inside, doing writing at the time, um, learning about organizing, doing organizing on um, cases. Um, and then I was drawn to the work of Angela Davis, obviously, who I feel like uh, really clarified so much for us. And felt like Angela Davis asked us these questions, essentially, of like, you know, if we are to imagine a world without prisons, um, what then do we have to do? What then um, are our relationships? What then are institutions? So it was really like wrestling with the, the points, the concepts, the work of Angela Davis that led me to healing justice in a lot of ways. Cause I, you know, took it down to the cellular level of like, okay, if we, if this is how you want to conceptualize our world, who do I have to be? How does that inform my relationship to my family, my accountability to my community? Um, and that led me on my own healing journey. Um, through my work came to somatics practice, which uh, started to bring all of that together into one place and into my body. Um, the impact of trauma and oppression and the possibility for liberation. And then I moved into being a, a therapist. And so I was uh, working as a therapist, but also seeing clients in the community. And it just naturally started to kind of move together and find a rhythm. And I've heard you say before this phrase about that, like on the cellular level. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to do it without getting too um, philosophical, as I'm prone to do. <laughs> Um, so I, I think my thinking is informed in a lot of ways by, you know, Adrienne Marie Brown was on the show talking about emergent strategy, but this concept of like fractals, what's happening on one level of uh, a system or a being is to express at every level of that um, being. And to me, we often... Um, see change is strictly an external process, um, something that happens outside of ourselves. The world changes and then we get to stay the same or the world changes around us. 
And the more that I've, um, you know, been studying and working um, as a somatics practitioner, the more I understand myself ultimately, the more I understand that, that change happens on our emotional levels, it happens on our psychological levels, um, it happens on our bodily level, because to me the body includes um, the mind, it includes the emotional body, it includes the physical body. Change towards more freedom, more aliveness, more liberation for all of us has to happen on the deepest, deepest levels. Um, it has to happen on all the levels and it has to happen on the deepest, deepest levels also. I think about, you know, you mentioned starting on your own healing journey. Um, and I've been trying to get a little more clear in my own life of like what those healing moments are. Cause I think healing can sometimes become like this far off thing because I'd, I don't know about you. I, I'm not sure that any time in my life I'm going to like feel healed, like in a past tense kind of way <laughs> or a whole complete kind of way. Um, but like for me lately, I've been noticing little things that feel part of the fabric of the story of healing. Like, okay, I noticed that I'm dreaming again, or now I'm taking this action that I'm going to therapy, or now I'm practicing like right before we started recording, verbalizing, like I'm not attached to the outcome, I'm prioritizing relationship, right? Um, or even noticing like I'm turning on music or singing in the shower again. Like, are there moments, either actions or big moments, or just things that have unraveled for you that you would use to kind of explain or mark your healing journey in a more tangible way? Yeah, so I think first what I want to say is that... Um, to me, healing is about increasing our awareness, increasing our liveness, increasing our, our presence. Um, and by that, I mean our ability to be here now. Um, for most of us, it will be an ongoing process. And I think for all of those domains, awareness, liveness, presence, there's so much available to us in all of those domains that often we can't perceive from where we are right now that there's even more. So I think for me, you know, that I've had a couple big jumps, a couple big moments in working with um, practitioners or mentors that I've, I've been able to be in relationship with where, um, yeah, I mean, if I'm just gonna be real on the podcast, I was in therapy for three years. I was able to be in therapy for three years and that, allowed me to um, touch into presence in a way that I never had before, the way that shame and oppression and abuse had um, taken me out of the present moment. And I worked with someone who was, you know, grounded in Buddhist practices and was able to just like help me be in the moment. And that was something I hadn't done for, if not all of my life, you know, 25 years. So. Yeah, I think that was a big shift for me. Mm -hmm. And in your own experience and also in the work that you do in many areas for Black liberation, are there particular ways that you would name seeing patterns either as a therapist or a somatic body worker or just in your experience of yourself that um, 
anti-blackness shows up on a cellular level? <sighs> this is a good question. I'm gonna have to like, I feel like anti-blackness obviously shows up on every level in it. We're so, we're swimming so, we're like swimming in these waters that we can't see the ways in which um, each and every one of us is shaped by anti-blackness. And the concepts of um, what blackness is, what blackness does, and then um, what we as people have to deny. Um, often I feel like anti-blackness shows up as actually a deep denial of all of our humanity, all of our realness, rawness, creativity, imagination, um, spontaneity. Um, I think anti-blackness operates because shame is a function that exists in our bodies. And um, shame is useful for controlling people. I think those are the ways at which anti-blackness operates has people try to distance themselves from certain experiences or certain ways of looking, being, acting. Um, and that's all a mechanism of, of manufactured shame. So to me, it's imperative for black people very specifically um, to uproot and uncover the ways that anti-blackness uh, operates inside of us and um, its relationship to shame um, and its functionality for control um, and, and how we can then step into our leadership, how we can articulate um, our clarity, what we see from this vantage point as black people. That's really, really critical. Um, and it is extremely critical for all people to deeply uproot how anti-blackness operates inside of them, the places they will and won't go internally, um, the places where their shame pops up and controls them um, as a way of understanding themselves better and understanding what their contribution could be. Um, towards getting us all a little freer, but yeah, I hope that's, <laughs> I hope that's clear. I mean, thank you. It's as, as you're speaking, I'm trying to both not make it about me and identify like as a white woman, what is also my answer to this question at my cellular level? Like, what am I feeling? Right. Um, and so when you talk about the waters that we're swimming in, like, I just have this image of shallowness. Mm -hmm. of like staying by the top and not actually being able to go deep. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting to hear the word shame because I think f fear is a true word and is also grabbed for a lot. Like when we talk about racism, we talk about, you know, fear. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm interested in like, what is the relationship of shame yeah. in that? Well, often it's conceptualized as like, you know, um, racism is a fear of black people. No, to me, I mean, yes, in some ways, yes, it manifests on that level, but it's really a shame of, it's, it's really humans being shameful. Like people create anti-blackness. It doesn't really have anything to do with me or my skin or your skin. On the deepest level, to me, it, it operates um, because people are constantly 
denying themselves their own humanity. It's a relief in some ways to deny it to this whole group of people. I get to I get to export these feelings of discomfort onto this whole group of people. I get to export this feeling of not belonging onto this whole group of people. Um, but it's an invitation into your own humanity always. Um, it's not really about me. Mm. So I don't know if this feels aligned, but I've, I've heard you use this phrase, politicizing the intimate. And I'm wondering if this is a moment where we could kind of um, define the term healing justice as you've used it in your work or describe a little bit about what that term means to you. Yeah, I mean, all of this to me is grounded on um, some of the revelations that Black feminists have brought to us over decades. Um, to me, healing justice is about the need for us to heal on the individual level, heal on the collective level, um, heal on um, ancestral generational levels. All of that has to take place at the same time. All of it does take place at the same time. Um, and we also have to build um, a world, institutions, formations that support that, that see that as necessary. Because the more that we are surrounded by and um, build institutions that don't see that rhythm of life as essential, um, the more we will continue to experience trauma that has no place to process. To me, you know, and I don't want to jump into a whole other realm, but um, trauma is going to happen. It's going to happen. Um, but we have to design our societies and ways of being um, in ways that allow that to process through, allow it to move through, allow it to be addressed, healed. Um, and if that is not at the center of how we build things together as human beings, um, we're going to keep replicating trauma, pain, and oppression. So to me, healing justice says, has to happen. Healing is a priority. And we have to structure the world in a way that knows that, a way that believes that. And, and I think, you know, um, one of the things that I say a lot is that um, we heal so that we can contribute. And I don't mean that everybody has to work in a particular way, or everybody has to do the same thing, but we heal so that what is our unique thing to give mm. is givable. Um, we are able to make that contribution back into the community. That, to me, is fundamentally why we heal. We don't heal, I think, in the ways that, you know, I'm trained as a therapist. We don't heal for the sake of healing, for the sake of healing, for the sake of healing. Mm -hmm. um, we heal to uncover and offer our contribution and act. Mm -hmm. I, I love that you're holding both because I think, you know, I came up in organizing that was like 1,000% action-centric um, and did not acknowledge space to process anything. Um, and as I've gotten more into the healing realm, I've – I've also encountered the other extreme, which is which becomes like healing for the sake of healing, um, which also sounds useful. Like I hesitate to qualify it as like we heal so we can get back to work, you know, and so I appreciate that you just said work doesn't have to look a particular way because um, we also aren't just here to like perform our function. Um, 
But I'm wondering, like in kind of this dance of incorporating the kind of the justice action work and the healing work, if you've also experienced it, spaces tipping, you know, so far into the healing side that then like there's no longer any time for action and like really strategically looking at how are we going to pull the pieces out from the power structures that are systematically traumatizing people at mm-hmm. an unsustainable mm-hmm. rate, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've seen that and I don't, I don't, um, I don't, you know, want to point it out as a way of saying this is wrong per se. Um, I think I feel similarly to you, but I do feel like we should be attentive to, (sighs) it's tricky because we do need this space. So I I actually, you know, it's a pendulum swing. There's been Mm. so little space that people are like, no, I need to take this space. I need to take this time to drop in. Um, so I, in, a, in some ways, I'm like, it's case by case, whether or not that's too much for a particular context. But I do think whatever body you're in or, or group you're in, if you notice what you're doing, either organizing or what you might call healing or you know, how you articulate the differences there, um, if whatever you're doing starts to be avoidant of something else, <laughs> Mm-hmm. then it's time to shift. If there are some actions you're, you keep putting on the back burner or um, community is making requests and you're just like, I'm focused on going in and I'm avoiding, you know, taking this to community or I'm taking it into the collective. Um, I think you have to tend to that. If you're organizing and you are avoidant of impact on others, avoidant of harmful dynamics, if you're avoiding um, your own emotionality, then that's something to then adjust. Um, But, you know, it's really just paying attention to that avoidance and being willing to to shift things up when necessary. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious a little bit of what that looks like super practically like on a day-to-day basis, because I just think director of healing justice is one of the coolest job titles like in the country. Um, And you just transition out of that role at Black Lives Matter Network. And uh, it was inspiring for me to even just see any organization resourcing that, right? Like saying this is important enough to institutionalize it, to, to resource it, like this is a part of our infrastructure. Um, and I'm curious in sort of guiding the work there and, and, um, helping folks like not go into avoidance in, in any direction, Mm -hmm. uh, what the day-to-day of that look like, or what some of the practical actions taken either by you or by some of the chapters, um, any stories that you have to offer? Yeah, um... I want to offer a little bit of context because I feel like it's important and, and by way of a story, but I, um, when the LA chapter, which was the first chapter of BLM was forming, I was living in LA and was at those meetings, with a lot of organizers who are still involved um, in the LA chapter and the movement broadly. And we, 
you know, at the time there were, you know, the first couple meetings of like, I don't know what the official number was, but it felt like a hundred, 120 people um, that were meeting at St. Elmo's Village where Patrice Colors was living. Uh, Melina Abdullah was there organizing. And uh, the conversation was, what do people need? And this, this is like the, you know, these are the first conversations in some ways in a chapter, like what do folks need in, in the broadest sense? And I ended up um, leading a, a, facilitating a conversation um, in a group that we call the Healing Justice Group. Cause someone I think said, we need healing justice. And so I took that group aside and we were like, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> and I remember, you know, people were throwing out all these ideas. We need um, healers, we need ceremony, we need ritual. Um, we need therapists here. Someone said, um, we need a church with no walls. We need church space where no one is turned away. Mm. And, you know, that moment is one of those defining moments in my life where I was like, you know, just so clear, um, so open and like, you know, the, the, the conversations that we were having were just so generative and inspiring about what's possible. So um, healing justice has been a part of the, you know, foundation of BLM since the beginning. And I think that the challenge of my role, but also I think it exists throughout the movement and through the network is that, um, we can both long for something and something can be really challenging at the same time. So um, we're not super practiced in making space for healing. Um, so I do think that while, you know, that title healing justice director or, you know, folks that are leading healing justice work in their chapters or folks that are part of the healing justice working group, um, it sounds cool. It sounds really exciting. And it's, it's super challenging, I think, in a lot of ways, um, because we're trying to address head on um, pain and uh, how we make space to cultivate our resilience. So I think on the day to day, like a big part of it is about, well, one kind of articulating healing justice, making the case for it, like we're doing here. I think it's a, this is an important intervention. The other piece is like, how do we get the training and development we need um, to do what we need to do well? Because when I think about healing justice, there's a lot of capacities and skills um, that need to be developed in order yeah. to make that intervention. Like we there's so many things to develop. There are things that I'm good at, and then there are things that I'm not good at that I would say are all important for healing justice. So we need training and development. We need training around transformative justice, training around trauma, around grief, around grief, which has been very central to our network, grief and loss. Um, we need 
training around conflict and how to be in that in generative ways. So one of the things, you know, we have a healing justice working group where folks throughout the network come and meet every two weeks. And we have um, trainers that come in. We do collective problem solving, peer support around what are the things that are coming up for us and how do we intervene. A lot of my work ends up being supporting that training, bringing in folks, um, bringing folks together to have those kind of support conversations and also providing direct support um, for folks that are moving through all sorts of interpersonal or, or personal um, challenges and um, trying, to, trying to create some like uh, tools that can be uh, guides as people are trying to bring healing justice work into their chapters or locations. So Mm -hmm. I think that's one way it can look, but it's really open. So, you know, I'm excited as there's more healing justice directors that are emerging, how people envision it and what are the interventions they come up with. We need more. Well, and I love that you're uplifting like craft and skill and training. Um, because that's one of the things that's sort of interesting about like the popularization of being able to refer to trauma and trigger and there's sort of like this weird correlation with the mainstreamizing of kind of mindfulness and yoga and meditation tools, right? Which are helping folks get more in touch with their bodies, but are also like really wound up in some capitalism stuff and, uh, some, non-body positivity in a variety of ways and um right so there's like this popularization which is cool because that's a question being asked in a public forum and I think that that's something somewhat fresh for that to be like a a, an organizer space question Mm -hmm. but also then like where's where's the craft piece right it was like well what is coming mm-hmm. up and and who do we actually need to hold and support that person who has some training and experience around what to do mm-hmm. um is there anything that you're seeing that's exciting in terms of either training programs that are giving more people tools to show up with skill or like networks that are helping match practitioners with activists so that the that support can become more accessible? Anything cool that you're seeing popping off in that area? Yeah. Um, Yeah, there's probably a lot more than I know. And so I'm excited if anybody listening wants to send resources my way. But um, I know that the National Queer and Trans Therapists of Color Network, I feel like has been a really incredible uh, intervention, which, you know, in some ways started off as a, a database to connect people to practitioners and has grown into this body that's helping to educate and organize um, practitioners actually to be of better service to the communities who need um, the resources. Um, I think in that same way about uh, Black Emotional and Mental Health Project BEAM, which is figuring out how to kind of transform already existing kind of mental health, you know, that whole thing um, to actually be something that black people can access and not feel dehumanized. Um, That is also working on like how to offer real concrete accessible tools for, for black people. Um, I look at, you know, dignity and power now in LA. I look at the work that um, 
organizers there, Mark Anthony Johnson in LA is, is working on uh, bringing together practitioners who can support formerly incarcerated folks and really see incarceration as a public health crisis. Um, there's all sorts of interesting things that I, I think are, are opening up and people are starting to understand violence, harm, trauma in different ways and then are able then to organize in response in response in, in real dynamic ways. So I'm curious too if there's any stories, you know, I've I've been a fan of the Healing Justice Toolkit that was put out through Black Lives Matter Network. And it really does have super practical skills, right? Like here's what a debrief after an action can look like, etc. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any stories about those type of tools um, being integrated into either meeting debrief space or action or ways that you've seen organizers in Black Lives Matter chapters mm -hmm. uh, operationalize healing justice. You know, there's a few toolkits that we um, have developed or that I've written or written in conjunction with the Healing Justice Working Group and um, the Healing in Action Toolkit that you're referencing. I've definitely worked with chapters and talked to chapters who've integrated it or have revised it even, which is even better. Um, mm. And so that's been really cool. And I think throughout the network, I see people doing all types of things. I know um, actually a couple people who are in the Healing Justice Working Group um, out of chapters in California have like integrated meditation space, reflection space into what is, you know, a chapter activity. All sorts of people like stepping into their practitionership and sharing that inside of their chapters. There's also a, a conflict toolkit that I don't think was shared out to the world. It's just been kind of shared internally that I know people have been able to use um, in conflict, but you know, that's just one resource. There's a lot of resources out there, um, but we have been trying to develop inside of the Healing Justice Working Group, what are some tools that speak to the conditions of trying to organize Black folks, given what we're up against? And so, you know, we keep trying to produce these things that are just like roadmaps, pointers that get us a little bit there. So people are doing all types of things. And I know last year, um, a bunch of chapters got together and did a sacred resistance action where folks organized in DC. Um, uh, I think uh, Sacramento I did this. something. Yeah, so a lot of chapters did collective actions in their locations that were just like, no, we're gonna build a force. We're gonna tap into something bigger. We're gonna do it in our own way with our own local flavor. It'll be what we do and how we do it, but we know we're connected to each other. Um, so those kind of, kinds of things happen and I think have the potential to happen more. So it's really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really cool to see. I think the one that happened in DC was like 24 hours or something like that. Yeah. And there's different things scheduled at different times. So it actually sounded like something that would be really nourishing to go to. Right. Um, as opposed to like, if you talk about like a 24 hour march or something like that, that just sounds hella exhausting. Um, so yeah, that's really cool to see creative action and that the action is, you know, it was taking place in DC, like in these really public places, it, it was direct action, but it was the experience of which was actually nourishing for folks. 
And we'd have to ask those organizers whether they felt nourished at the end because sometimes then it's like the people at the center who were holding that for everyone else actually feel totally exhausted. Um, but yeah, that was a beautiful example. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering too how that dynamic has been for you in terms of like, that would be the other piece I think of holding a, a title of being a director of healing justice is like, that's a lot of pressure to embody a lot of wisdom all the time ah. <laughs> and like to hold a lot of pain and to support a humongous amount of pain and intergenerational trauma of this country. Right. And that you're someone upon which like your body also is not safe. Um, and so what was that experience like? Do you feel like you had enough support and kind of methods in your own life to have enough support yourself? Or was there a dynamic of, of providing that for others, but not fully having it? Um, it's interesting that you say, like, that's a lot of pressure to embody wisdom because that had actually never occurred to me <laughs> as something <laughs> I needed to do. <laughs> oh, ah, okay. Um, actually as a healing justice director i think there are people who are holding um that weight everywhere that people in in every chapter i would imagine um that feel that kind of weight to hold it all together so i don't feel like i had to hold the weight of everybody um but i do feel like it's important for us to deeply integrate healing justice into organizing. And I'm not sure as a whole um, movement that that has happened. I think there are definitely um, places and people, chapters that have like actually gotten a pretty good grasp on how to do that. Um, But I think it's a challenge because healing justice is kind of a buzzword yet is often um, misunderstood. I think it's sometimes reached for an emergency, primarily. Um, it's a challenge that the healer, quote unquote, or the person that is standing in that role um, doesn't become a repository mm. um, for challenging things. It can't be on any one person anywhere, no matter what configuration organization you're in to to hold that it's not it's not possible yeah and you know that's making me reflect because when i started asking you that question i think i was making an assumption that because your role was made explicit that it would carry more responsibility and i think the truth is that in many of our organizations families homes neighborhoods there's people holding these roles but it's just implicit Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, like it's somebody right. who's trying to hold the emotional well-being right. and like survival of the group. And I'm wondering, based on your experience, did you find it very useful to have that role actually made explicit, so that that labor is visibilized, so that we can actually talk about what is the craft of holding that role instead of just like uh, it landing where it normally lands? Yeah, I think this is something to again reflect on collectively of. Um, how do we make it all visible to make visible what is invisible? Um, and how do we then also take more and more collective responsibility for what we see? And I think that's the contradiction and, and lesson inside of creating any of these roles 
um, in our chapters, in our organizations, in our movements, um, even as we kind of identify who's a healer and who's not. I think it's, I think it's a, a question for us all to be in: is how do we, how do we, how do we value it? You know, because it's been happening. And then, you know, as practitioners, how do we keep refining our skills? But how do we value it? And then also um, understand then our responsibility to lifting it up, to practicing it um, together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to visibilizing that work, but then also take collective responsibility that it's not on one person. I mean, I think that's a beautiful thing that it didn't even occur to you as a lot of pressure because that means that you're embodying <laughs> that sense of collective responsibility, right? Oh, um, I don't know. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Um, and I do want to ask you too, so there's a piece that you wrote in the Huffington Post that was really great kind of talking about healing justice and um, and what it is and what the, sort of some of the principles or guiding philosophies are of, of thinking about these things in combination. And as kind of the popularization of healing modalities happens and the commercialization at scale in this country, um, I'm curious if there's any interventions that you would make on things that are being called healing justice or uh, like kind of a healing or safe space type of culture in movements that you want to intervene on. It's trying to get me in trouble on this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see. Yeah. Overall, I think um, we maybe intentionally or unintentionally have, um, we lack some clarity around what are the specific interventions um, that are possible inside of healing justice and then how do we develop ourselves towards those. Um, And uh, I think people have probably done this work already if we listen um, and ask the right questions. Um, but I also, I, I, I just think we don't all do the same things as healers. And I actually feel really good about that. Um, the possibility of uh, offerings that there are. And um, I just want us to keep getting clear on what works where. And I think there are ways to understand that. Um, So for example, like, you know, some of the things I mentioned earlier is like grief is a really, to me, a specific sort of skill set. understanding grief and working with grief. Um, I think cultivating spaces of resilience, um, restoration, I often get called on, and I don't want to pigeonhole myself on this podcast, but people will say, oh, okay, you're a healer practitioner. Can you like create this particular kind of space for us? My work is mostly in trauma. My work is mostly in grief. And my work is in conflict. Um, and I see those as distinct uh, skills that I've developed over time. I can do some things, and I understand resilience, and I cultivate it in my life. But there are people who actually do that 
to a much higher skill than I know how. And I call on those people in those moments. So I think just in general, getting that level of specificity and then um, an accompanying level of, of training and development of people and a coordination then of healers who, you know, I have people who I trust to do things that I cannot do. And I think it's, I think it's really important for people who identify with the term healer to get clear on their limitations because we can be out here causing a lot of damage. Um, so that's, that's one, one thing for me. And then I think the other thing for me, um, if I'm just being real is that, um, kind of related to that being a healer doesn't, um, make you a better person. Mm. And I also want to, intervene on any ways that that starts to manifest. I make mistakes, I've made mistakes. I probably made several today. Um, and I think as healers, part of our work is to show our work, is to reveal and be vulnerable in front of other people. Um, and the more we remove ourselves, um, I think the less powerful we are in some ways, the less um, trustable we are, um, the less effective we are ultimately. So there's a little bit of a trend of like, a healer sits above and I'm like, please stop that. A healer is a person who, in my mind, maybe has cultivated some skills and is a person. Yeah, and I love the I love the specificity of talking about the grief piece because it there is sort of this thing that I think I think it's because we're fresh to this concept of really integrating healing with skill. And so there's sort of like this magical brushstroke of like, well, this is the healing space. Right? This happens at some trainings that I'm a part of. It's like this room is the healing space and because we put a plant in there and like some colored pencils people are going to go in here and take a break and they're going to come out healed. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah. On that point, I mean, can I say one more thing? I'm sorry please to interrupt you. I, I, I feel like <clears throat> also one thing that I'd like to intervene on is that I think it is important for us to feel held, understood, loved unconditionally, and that that is healing. Um, I don't think healing always feels good, which is another thing that I say all the time. Mm -hmm. So um, to me, one of the things that I feel like is an important intervention is remembering that, you know, we don't want to obviously re-traumatize. We don't want to be harmful. And healing is sometimes painful. And... Um, I think it's important for us to figure out how to be in conflict in ways that don't um, aim to destroy one another. And I feel like it's important for us to keep increasing our skill level on saying hard things to each other yeah. while holding each other in dignity and love. So yeah. I just want to say that. Well, I want to ask you just as we close, I know you're going to offer us a practice and if you could tell us a little bit about what to expect. Yeah, so I, I've been thinking about this question of belonging and um, how often we think of belonging as an external process 
um, as dependent on permission. And one of the practices I've been doing personally is how to cultivate uh, an internal and also just broader sense of belonging and how to make space to reflect and connect to a belonging that isn't tenuous and isn't up for debate. So I want to offer that to this community, just a time to reflect, be in practice on how you can decide to belong. Thank you. That sounds so useful, like um, right now in everyday life useful. So thank you. Um, so for folks who want to do the belonging practice with Prentice, you can download the next episode. If you're listening right when this comes out, the practices always come out on Thursdays. So you can watch for that to go live on Thursday and practice that along with Prentice's instruction. And are there any last thoughts, Prentice, that you didn't get a chance to share? Any asks that you have for folks um, who are trying to show up to this work more? Anything you want to say as we conclude together? Yeah. Um, for me, I, I, I think the key thing is to remember to risk vulnerability um, with each other, to practice and fail, um, and to be generous as people practice and fail around you. And um, I feel like anything I've ever been able to do is a representation of the support and love that I have around me. So um, all of that and that circle sits with me right now. So grateful. Thank you. We're grateful to you for your work and for sharing with us. Thanks, Kate. You just heard a heartfelt conversation between Kate Warning and Prentice Hemphill. You can download the corresponding practice that Prentice offers, which will guide you through a practice centered on reflecting on belonging and how belonging is a state that can be generated within our own bodies and that we're not dependent on the world to give that to us. You will need a little bit of a quiet space, and it's a practice that you can do alone or in a group, but you'll want to be undisturbed for about 20 minutes. So see if you can grab that space and then download the corresponding practice to follow along with Prentice's wisdom. Check out the show notes for references to a couple of the things that Prentice mentioned as they talked, including the Healing in Action Toolkit from the Black Lives Matter Network, an awesome article from the Huffington Post that Prentice authored last year, and also links to some of the organizations that Prentice referred to as they were talking. And hey, if you want to be more deeply part of this community in this new year, you can sign up to stay in touch with us at healingjustice.org and talk to us on social media. We are sharing quotes and images from our inspiring guests like Prentice every single day on Instagram at Healing Justice, on Facebook as Healing Justice Podcast, and on Twitter at HJ Podcast. Our team is also 100% volunteer, and we spend our own money to cover the tech costs for this project. So if you are in a position to chip in at any level, please join us by contributing at patreon.com slash healing justice. And that link is also in the show notes. 
I'm so grateful every week for the contribution of Zach Meyer at the Coal Room in mixing and producing this podcast, and this week for the editing talent of Yoshi Fields. Thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us, including you. Hear you next week.